Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com and I also can be found on all the major third-party podcast directories like Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. And I also have a blog that I started writing in, I guess it's almost three years now. I haven't done much with the blog since I switched over to the podcast format in March of this year. And that was at or about the time of the Austin oral argument in the United States Supreme Court. But uh, you can find that blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot All right, today is December 2nd, 2021, and we're going to continue our discussion of the Constitution Committee and what's really going on here. And things have been moving so fast, and it's occurring in the holiday season, so you don't have as much media attention and you have people focused on other things. But as the timetable is set out right now, there's going to be another meeting, a virtual convention-like meeting on December 15th of this year, and that's just two weeks away now. At that meeting, it's my understanding that the membership is going to give a final thumbs up or thumbs down to this draft constitution and any changes that have been made since November 15th when the NCAA, its first virtual convention, and got a straw poll opinion from the divisions. And it was basically, yes, so 74 to 85% of of the members in these three divisions have said that they support the basic structure of the existing draft constitution. And then assuming that that gets the thumbs up on December 15th, that document will then be put to the entire membership for a vote in January at the annual meeting in January of 2022. And in order for the new constitution to be ratified, two-thirds of all of the members of the NCAA, the 1,200 members across the three divisions, have to say yes. And that is why, in my judgment, and I think in Bob Gates's admission, and Bob Gates is the chair of this constitution committee and a member of the NCAA Board of Governors, but the Division Two and Division Three interests have been purchased. Their votes have been purchased by guaranteeing them uh, minimum payoffs from the March Madness money, minimum annual payoffs. I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in just a minute here. And I, I want to do a couple of things in this episode. And the first is to just set the table now that it appears that the NCAA and Power Five have been successful in getting buy-in in into this power grab and this bait and switch that's not unlike tactically what the NCAA and Power Five tried to pull off in the Senate beginning in the fall of 2019 by using NIL, name, name, image, and likeness, as this Trojan horse issue to get in front of the Senate and advocate for the most audacious regulatory power grab in the history of American sports, through which they tried to eliminate all external regulators to the NCAA governance structure and and its amateurism-based compensation limits. But as I've said in prior episodes, the NCAA and the Power Five couldn't just march into Congress and say, we want absolute antitrust immunity. We want to be completely relieved of any interference from state legislatures or state regulators. And we want to 
declare that this class of workers that are making us billions of dollars can't have the benefits of employee status. You just can't walk into Congress and demand those three things. There has to be a plausible justification for that. And the justification that the NCAA and Power Five used was name, image, and likeness. And it was a blitzkrieg to try to get these three powerful protections and immunities at the federal level. And their justification was, if you give us these three things, then we can provide name, image, and likeness, quote unquote, compensation to athletes. And that was a ruse. It was a complete ruse. That was the Trojan horse. Name, image, and likeness was a Trojan horse through which the NCAA could sit in front of a microphone in the Senate with a straight face and claim to have some bona fide need for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And that was the way that the template was set from the very beginning. But they're using the same strategy in this constitutional committee and the constitutional makeover. And what they're saying now is that we absolutely need to uh, fundamentally restructure the allocation of power within this big tent NCAA across the three divisions and send what had been national power down to the divisions. And that's something that has to be done in order to promote athlete health, safety, and well-being. That's the face of this. That is the bait for public relations purposes. If you agree with us, if you buy into this makeover, then you support student-athlete well-being. You support student-athlete mental and physical health. And we have these three athletes, three out of 500,000. We don't know how they found their way on this committee. I don't think they were elected. I don't think that they applied. I don't think that there was any formal process. They were hand-selected, and the NCAA and Power Five aren't going to hand-select any representatives for any committee unless those people buy in to the NCAA's objectives, even if the face of the campaign has nothing to do with the true objectives. And that's normally the case. And that's certainly the case here, as I'm going to discuss in just a minute. But you have this public relations facade that is nothing more than a distraction away from what's really happening here. And let's talk about exactly what is happening and where things stand right now and how quickly this has moved, because that's another important issue here. This thing is just being rammed through with as little notice and as little discussion as possible. So this Constitution Committee was announced out of the blue, literally out of the blue, on July 30th of 2021. And Bob Gates was named the chair of this new Constitution Committee, and it was a new face. And I believe this is the first time that any member of the NCAA Board of Governors who was not the chair, and Gates is not the chair of that body. He is an independent board member, one of the five independent uh, board members. And he was put in charge of this, and he was the public face of it. And he's the most high-profile member of the Board of Governors, I would say. And he has some credibility and a resume that I think people look at and say, well, this guy's worth listening to. And then they buried Mark Emmert. He just disappeared. He went into the NCAA Witness Protection Program, (laughs) which was a smart move because Emmert was largely responsible for putting the NCAA in the position it was in, fighting for relevance in July of 2021. 
But Gates announces that this committee is is necessary because the NCAA is in a fight for relevance and it has to align authorities and responsibilities. And I did some episodes on that, both that July 30th announcement and then a couple of episodes on the NCAA's responsibilities and its authorities because Gates mischaracterized those components of the NCAA regulatory model. But we're in a battle for relevance. We need to restructure. There was no discussion initially about student-athlete mental and physical health. That just got folded in because it gave the NCAA and Power Five's uh, power grab here some breathing room. And they have put a face on this, both with the three athletes and then the three representatives who have been identified as the face of this Constitution Committee. They've put a face on this that's difficult to criticize. If you come out and you're criticizing the student athletes, then you're a bully. And now, just a couple of months after Bob Gates announced this uh, Constitution Committee and the necessity for it, based on the NCAA's need to remain relevant, that narrative has shifted to the student-athlete physical and mental well-being. And so they plaster all this propaganda on their website. And I'm going to talk about the student part of this in a separate episode, because one of the things I'm going to do in this episode is go through a podcast episode through the NCAA social series program that they put on their website. It runs through NCAA.com. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And Andy Katz is the host. He's a former ESPN guy. I think he does some work for the Big Ten. I mentioned him in one of my prior episodes on Bob Gates, but they have been putting out their propaganda through this social series. And they've done three episodes, one back in September where Bob Gates was trying to lay out the justification for this Constitution Committee and the basic framework for it. Then on November 8th, the very day that this draft constitution was published by the NCAA, the NCAA went all out with their campaign to put the athletes as the face of this constitution makeover. And on the website, there's this kind of regal photo that has the faces of the three athletes that are on this constitution committee. And the tagline and the big font message was voices for change. So this is all about the student athletes. And that was just a public relations pivot when the naked power grab that the Power Five was seeking here, and then the buy-off of the Division Two and Division Three interests, and then the preservation of the NCAA national office, which is all this is about, was so transparent to people who really knew what was going on that they had to put a face on this that was going to minimize criticism. And you do that by hiding behind the student-athlete voice. It's a propaganda tool, and it's no different from the, the name, image, and likeness facade that the NCAA and Power Five put on their campaign in Congress in 2019-2020. So that came out of nowhere. You didn't hear Gates talking about that when he was announcing the necessity of this committee and this constitutional makeover. And then just a week later, on November 15th, you had this virtual convention. So the stakeholders here had a week, a week to digest what the NCAA is characterizing for public relations purposes as one of the most transformative changes in the way that the NCAA is organized and how it's going to govern itself in the history of the NCAA going back to the early 20th century. But the membership, they get a week. To, to read through this garbled document that was thrown together that disguises its true purpose. 
And there has been virtually no intelligent discussion out in the sports media because they don't really care. This is about public perception and public consumption of the NCAA false narratives. And this social series podcast episode I want to talk about today was done on November 19th on the backside of this virtual convention on November 15th. After a week of debate and serious debate and all these stakeholders were trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. And when you're operating with very little information, it's been sprung on you at the last minute and then you have to make a quick decision, what are you going to do? You're going to default to listening to the leaders in your group or people who you think uh, represent your stakeholder interests. And you're going to say, well, if it's okay with them, it's okay with me. And that's exactly what this campaign has been about. And they did that with the students and they had this uh, social series podcast on November 8th with the three students. And, and I'm going to go through that at some point when I talk about the students separately. And I just I want to talk about the role of students and athletes in the controlling their own destiny because they're the ones that are supposed to be at the center of all this and they're really not. They're just props right now for the commercial interests of the Power Five and the NCAA National Office. But this episode, this social series podcast episode is really like an infomercial. I'm going to talk about at a more broad level at some point all of the propaganda techniques that the NCAA has used. I'm going to talk about two of them in connection with this November 19th podcast. And in this November 19th podcast, the NCAA and the Power Five wanted to put a face on the institutional interest. And they did that by having three people participate in this podcast episode. One was Linda Livingstone. So Linda Livingstone is the face of this transformation and this whole campaign to get the Power Five what they want. And the way that they're framing these interests, both the student interest and then the institutional interest, the adult interest, is by division. So they want to paint this big tent perception. And we're all in this together. Everybody agrees. And divisions one, two, and three are all holding hands and singing kumbaya. And we just want to preserve our values. And we have to do that across all three divisions. And we are just all in this together. <laughs> that flies in the face of the necessity for this whole constitutional makeover, which is based on the differences between the three divisions and the fact that the interests of Division One have virtually nothing in common with the interests of Division Three. So they're playing this Orwellian cognitive dissonance game that they've been playing really since the 1950s with the amateurism scam and the student-athlete scam and the collegiate model scam. They have a foot in two worlds that simply can't be reconciled. So I mentioned Livingstone, and then she's a Division I rep among the institutional interests. Then the Division II rep is a guy named Harry Stinson, and he is the athletics director at Lincoln University in the Pennsylvania system. It's a Division II school, so he's a Division II representative. He's African-American, and he played football at Florida State in the late 1990s, and I think that was one of the reasons he was selected. And then Division III, the face of this constitutional committee through Division Three is a woman named Stevie Baker Watson, who is the athletic director at DePaul University. That's not DePaul, but DePaul, ending with a W, not an L. All three 
three of, of those representatives, the divisional representatives, I mean, they just had their propaganda boots on and they were dancing their asses off. And if you understand these issues, it was just comical almost how readily they just spewed out the propaganda points. And I'll say this too. So when Gates uh, first announced the roster for this Constitution Committee, that came out on August 10th of 2021. There were 23 members, 22 or 23 members. That was kind of the initial size of the committee that Gates envisioned. The following day, on August 11th, there were five, I think, additional members named, and it just that just seemed odd to me. And I looked at the list, and it was a diversity list. And so you had more d- division two and three interests, and you had an African-American woman who was, I think was a university president. You had an African-American man. And that was Harry Stinson. He and Stevie Baker Watson, who was also on that second list from Division Three, they didn't make the first cut. They were brought in as walk-ons to fill out the roster there. But you had an Asian-American man and a Hispanic female. So it looked to me like uh, that first list wasn't passing muster under the symbolic PC diversity litmus test that the NCAA is so proud of. So they brought in another group of committee members that sort of put a more PC-friendly face on the committee. And now two of the three public faces at the institutional level are from the walk-on list. (laughs) I I just find that interesting. And that's not to denigrate Stinson or Baker Watson. They're doing what they think is best for their divisional interest. And that has very little to do with the student athletes. It has everything to do with money. So that's a good place to start about where things stand right now as of December 2nd of 20. 21 with this constitutional makeover and what has already been achieved by ramming this through without any intelligent justification for the committee itself and also without any meaningful, thoughtful process. And all of these discussions have been done behind the scenes. If they're serious about educating the membership and providing a transparent process that has some integrity, why don't they do a live feed for all of these deliberations and just do what what you would expect would be done at institutions representing higher education. Let's just put a camera in the lecture room. Let's have the open debate. Let's have the back and forth. And all these people now on the back side of it are talking about how incredible the debate was and how robust it was. And they're ready to take on all comers. And they'll talk to anybody, but they're not talking to anybody. These people are only putting their messages out through in-system propagandists. Bob Gates isn't offering interviews to outside news sources, and neither are any of the people that now are the famous of this Constitution Committee. Any of these athletes or any of these three participants in this podcast episode are going to sit down and answer tough questions from somebody who knows what they're talking about. That's not going to happen. That's not what this is about. This is a propaganda campaign. And it's been successful so far because the moving parts in this that matter the most have gotten everything that they want right now. Important decisions that have to be made have been deferred to this Division One Transformation Committee that I'll be talking about here soon. So 
how does the Power Five achieve that? And again, this is a Power Five show. It is a football show. And the basketball, the men's basketball product, which is so important to the NCAA because its very existence depends on revenue from that product, that's just a bargaining chip here. So if you're the NCAA and the Power Five and you're trying to work out the terms of your relationship, and it is a marriage of convenience. That's, uh, I think, a good way to describe the relationship between the NCAA and the Power Five. And it is becoming more convenient and less of a marriage as much as it is an arrangement. And under the arrangement that the Power Five have dictated, and they're calling the shots here, they're dictating the terms. Because if they take their ball and go outside, the NCAA collapses. It just collapses because the March Madness money is likely to go with it. Or more accurately, the value in the March Madness product would go with the Power Five if they left the NCAA altogether. So if you're the Power Five, you need to do two things, and and they both really amount to buy-offs. You have to buy the NCAA national office, and then you have to buy the downstream beneficiaries of the status quo, because under the existing NCAA constitution, in order to change the constitution, in order to amend the constitution, you need two-thirds of the entire membership. So you've got 1,200 schools across three divisions. You need two-thirds of those schools to vote in favor of an amendment to the existing constitution. So what do you do? You guarantee the downstream beneficiaries that their gravy train will not be disrupted. And they did that by putting into this draft constitution a standalone constitutional provision that guarantees Division II and Division III a cut of the March Madness money and also the benefit of association-wide NCAA services also funded exclusively by revenue from the March Madness contract and the labor elite Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. So really all the Power Five have to do to get what they want out of this deal, and that is their own empire, their sports empire underneath the NCAA umbrella, is to buy off the Division II and Division Three interests, and they have done that. They've done that, and Division Two and, and Division Three are saying whatever the Power Five need them to say now. And then they also have secured the long-term existence of the NCAA bureaucratic state by preserving the March Madness revenue streams, which run into 2032. And that's not that difficult. I mean, that basically preserves the two components of the status quo that have been very important to the NCAA national office and then the downstream beneficiaries of this March Madness money. All they have to do in exchange is basically turn all the power that they might otherwise have over to Division One and the Power Five. Presto, buy off Divisions Two and Three in the NCAA national office, and then you set it and forget it. I love that. That was from a, a Ronco infomercial, Ron Popier. Set it and forget it. That's really what the status quo is going to be for the NCAA national office with all these national championships. And so much of that is a set it and forget it enterprise. And with the most important component of that, the March Madness tournament, the template for that is locked in and it's locked in through 2032. So the boys at the national office who are getting obscene, excessive salaries and are living the lifestyle of the rich and famous off the backs of the laborers in high-level Division I 
men's basketball. They get to just keep living the lifestyle that they have grown accustomed to. So in this marriage analogy, this marriage of convenience, without getting a divorce by the Power Five leaving the NCAA, they're just sort of having a divorce-like settlement while staying in a sham marriage. And they're giving the NCAA and the Division II and Division III enough money to live in the style that they have grown accustomed to. So let me now turn to this podcast episode. And again, this was on November 19th. And when I did my episode on November 19th, I hadn't seen this and I hadn't listened to it, but it's important because the NCAA and Power Five are in their propaganda phase of this. And they have blitzkrieged the membership and they have gotten most of what they really want. The most important details will be deferred to this Division One Transformation Committee. And that's where the rubber is going to meet the road in terms of exactly what the infractions and enforcement process looks like, exactly what areas the Power Five choose to enforce through legislation, through NCAA legislation. And they really have a blank slate here, I think. And the enforcement component is so, so important. And there aren't any good answers to that yet. And then we also, I think, have some open questions about the relationship, the operating relationship between the NCAA national office and the Power Five. Linda Livingstone talks a little bit about that, and I'll get into it. But as we're going through this and and looking at it through the lens of of propaganda, I want to identify two propaganda tactics that Katz uses here that the NCAA has been using quite effectively for years, and they're related. And one is creating spontaneous consent to patently false narratives. And I talked about that in the context of the collegiate model, Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and how that absurd theory that mandates the maximum exploitation of revenue from big-time football and big-time men's basketball and then transferring the wealth created by the laborers in those two sports down to beneficiaries in the system that can't pay for themselves. And that's a racial transfer. It's a regressive transfer from largely African-American male laborers down to comparatively affluent and overwhelmingly white beneficiaries. But how do you get such a ridiculous concept into mainstream buy-in in a way that's almost unchallengeable now? That is through propagandization. And I talked about that through this article that came out in 2013 titled Cheering the Collegiate Model, written by Richard Southall, professor at uh, the University of South Carolina, and uh, Professor Ellen Storowski, who I think now is at Ithaca. She had been at Drexel. I think she's now at Ithaca. But they analyzed the NCAA as propagandist and talked about how propagandists can achieve spontaneous consent. And it's a really interesting article. But that's part of this propaganda campaign now with the Constitution Committee. And you achieve that by closing the circle of permissible debate. And I talked about that Noam Chomsky quote where basically Chomsky says, look, in order to preserve a corrupt status quo, you first narrowly define the acceptable parameters of debate encourage lively debate within those narrow parameters and create the illusion 
of uh, meaningful differences of opinion. But what you're really doing is reinforcing the values that uh, are the guardrails on either side of the narrow parameters. And they're being reinforced through this kabuki theater exercise. That's exactly what the NCAA does in its propaganda campaign. And they have perfected that. They've elevated that to an art form. And that's exactly what's happening here. And here, we don't even know what the true parameters of the debate are because we haven't been given access to what a debate has actually occurred. We're just taking the NCAA's word for it, and all of the information we're getting is running through NCAA propagandists, through the NCAA website, through this NCAA.com outfit and the Social Series podcast. Even though that's titled NCAA.com, NCAA.com is actually owned by Turner and uh, Turner Interactive. And of course, Turner is party to the March Madness contract. CBS and Turner pay for that $1.1 billion contract and they fund the NCAA national office. And the NCAA.com is doing the bidding of the NCAA. And that goes into a whole another component of my analysis of the business of big time college sports. And that is the incestuous relationships that exist behind the scenes at extraordinarily powerful levels in the sports media entertainment complex and you know Turner's owned by Warner Media and of course you have ESPN owned by Disney you have this messaging coming from the the gods of mega corporate media from Warner Media down to Turner down to Turner Interactive down to NCA.com and what you get on the output side has been laundered through all of these corporate interests and it is pure propaganda. And I would say in terms of the, the quality of the propaganda, what Andy Katz is putting out here is far more effective than I think what the infomercialists have put out over the years. And that market got so ridiculous because people actually believe that stuff is real. They truly believe that. And that's why the FTC stepped in, I don't know, I think it was in the 1980s, and said, look, we, we want a warning label here. So if your infomercial is longer than 15 minutes, you have to put this tag at the bottom of the screen that says, this is a paid advertisement. And this is a much different form of propaganda because it is laundered through credible sources. The Don LaPrez of the world and the get-rich-quick people and the house-flipping people and the timeshare people, they just have their private interests and they are purchasing access to get their propaganda out. Here, there is market incentive built in through existing high powered relationships at the highest level of sports entertainment media. And the message is coming from credible people, and then it's being recycled out in the quote-unquote sports media, and that gives it legitimacy. And then you have powerful people like Robert Gates putting his name behind that, and then members of the Division One Board of Directors who are university presidents and conference commissioners and all these people who have immediate, ready, 24-7 access to some of the biggest megaphones in America, in, in any sector, in any industry. They can get their message out 
instantaneously. They can coordinate it instantaneously, and it's almost impossible to refute. Andy Katz is using that tactic through these powerful interests. Don LaPrey, he had to massage his message and hone it and get it to a point where he could get people to buy his garbage, and they did. They did. Andy Katz doesn't have to do anything. He gets instant credibility because of the pipeline through which his propaganda runs. And that is such a powerful advantage. And it's one of the reasons that I think the individual propagandists at the individual level in the NCAA and the Power Five, whether they're talking to Congress or whether they're doing an infomercial, they believe that they are untouchable because of the power of the messaging capacity of the corporate interests that stand behind them or the political interests that stand behind them and the lobbying interest and the legal team that they have put together and the public relations campaign that they have put together. They can control the message. And Linda Livingstone knows that she is protected as well as any person in America can be protected by industry allies who are going to run in interference for her and shout down any critic of what she has to say. That's a pretty nice position to be in. And so the other thing, the other tactic that is really a component part of this spontaneous consent is identifying and isolating anyone who disagrees with the narrative that you are spinning. And Katz does this explicitly in this episode, and this is what I call the Saul Alinsky treatment. It is identify, isolate, and trash. Once the in-system propagandists have identified a narrative that is important to them, any person who criticizes that narrative outside of the narrow parameters that the in-system stakeholders have defined, that person is a bad actor. That person is a threat to all of the values, the upright values that college sports stands for. That person is outside the mainstream. That person is on the fringe. That person is a fringe lunatic. And that person can't be trusted. So you identify, then you isolate. And then you attack. And Katz does this in this episode. And I'll I'll point that out and show you how that, that plays out. But those two tactics are very effective when you have absolute control of the media marketplace. And you can get whatever message you want out there any time of the day or night. And it becomes virtually unchallengeable. That's a very powerful dynamic. And it's one of the things that's made it so difficult for athletes' rights advocates to get their message out into the mainstream through the same channels of power, authority, and uh, prestige as the NCAA and Power Five have been able to. And so there's this sort of sense that's developed, and it, it happened in this congressional testimony over the course of it beginning in February of 2020, and with Ramoji Huma, who was the kind of point person advocate for the athletes, is that you really begin to see how those powerful interests start to marginalize voices and to characterize voices in a way that make them appear less credible. And you're starting to think about the affiliations of this person and the motives of this person, not what they actually have to say. Nobody's questioning the motives 
of the people who are benefiting from these in-system networks of power. Nobody's questioning the motives of NCAA.com or Andy Katz or Turner or they bought the Bleacher Report. Turner bought the Bleacher Report in 2012, which is the world's largest sport message board, really. And, you know, it's a big platform, but it's all connected. All these interests are connected. And again, that's a, that's a big discussion for another, another round of episodes. But it's playing out in real time right now with this Constitution Committee. So let's just go to this interview. It's only about 30 minutes long, and it's pretty clear when you go through a transcript. I created a transcript of this, this podcast episode, this social series podcast episode. And you see pretty easily what the talking points were that Katz was trying to get out there, what the prepared responses were and the extent to which this is a piece of propaganda, not an attempt to provide meaningful and helpful information about what's actually going on here. This is smoke and mirrors. This is part of the bait and switch. So Katz introduces himself and they're talking about the work of the committee and they're reflecting on the work of the committee. And so Katz wants to get some initial feedback from these three interests, these representatives of each of the three divisions. And they start with Livingstone. And one of the things, the other, I think, persuasion technique they use here is that Livingstone is the alpha female here. And she is the one that the Division Two and Division Three interests defer to. And there's a lot of circular reinforcement here where these people refer to each other. Oh, and what uh, Dr. Livingstone said, I couldn't agree more. I just uh, couldn't agree more. And there's a lot of backslapping. And that creates this illusion that everybody reads from the same page. It reinforces at the propaganda level that there is complete consensus to all of the items that are going to be discussed in this episode. Everybody agrees. Nobody disagrees. And if you disagree, you're a fringe lunatic. And that was used in the setup for this podcast episode with the press release that the NCAA put on its website. And it was all about these interests working together and everybody agrees and they're aligning principles and they stand behind the same values. That was another important technique here that their agreement on the necessity for change was running through student-athlete interests and the need to promote mental and physical health and well-being for these athletes and all, all this misdirection. But they were trying to tie all these disparate interests that have no business being under the same regulatory umbrella. They tried to to bring them together at the values level, trying to make the argument that Ohio State football and Finlandia soccer, I don't even know if they have a soccer team. They only have 400 students. But Finlandia in, in Division Three, they are identical at the values level, and that is an absolute fraud. They don't operate in the same universe. They don't have the same value system, and they have no business being under the same umbrella. But the message here is to create the big tent illusion, and everybody is reading from the same page, and all all these disparate interests are sitting in the same amateurism sandbox, harmoniously playing together and singing kumbaya. So uh, you have Livingstone. I was really pleased with the reaction to the Constitution. It was pretty positive, and we have some things we can adapt, and we got some good feedback. But in general, this was really good stuff, and we are on the right track. And then Stinson, Division Two guy, jumps in. I feel the same way. Everybody had an opportunity to look and, and give some positive feedback. 
feedback. We're really on the right track. I'm excited to see where it takes us. And then you have the Division Three opening statement. And Stevie Baker Watson talks about how receptive the Division Three membership was to all of these important changes. And everybody had a whole week to digest this. I mean, she presents this like they had all this time to really figure out what they liked and what they didn't like. And she loved the feedback. And they're going to go back and, you know, make some tweaks. But boy, everybody's just happy as hell because everything is on track. Then Katz transitions to talking point number two. All right. So what do you think was imperative and what do you think needed to be tweaked? So what were the non-negotiable items for you? And then what are the things maybe that could use a little bit of massaging and maybe some change? And then he went in reverse order and he starts with Stevie Baker Watson, Division Three, And she leads, all these people lead with the student athlete experience. I didn't do a word count on this, but the student athlete experience was just uh, tossed out in this podcast episode like candy at a Christmas parade. And so Baker Watson says, you know, for us, we focus on the student athlete experience, just like our other colleagues in Division One and Division Two. We talk about it all the time, the student athlete experience. And then she gets to the heart of the matter. We align our finances in our division related to the student athlete experience. So it was imperative that the student athlete and their voice play a more prominent role as we move forward. And we're grateful for the three students who represented each of the divisions. Again, this is just hiding behind the student face that was put on this constitutional committee initiative after Bob Gates initially framed it on July 30th and through August and September. And we weren't talking too much about all these student voices and the need to enhance the student-athlete experience. It was about getting the NCAA into a position of relevance and aligning responsibilities and authorities. But what's important about the way that Baker Watson talks about that uh, student-athlete experience is that she directly links it to money. And she's basically saying, in order for us to do our righteous work on behalf of the student-athlete experience, we got to have our money. So we are aligning our money with our values. And if you don't give us the money, we can't promote those values. And that would be a horrible outcome. And then she goes down, and I really want to drill down on this because this is an important point and another piece of propaganda. So Baker Watson points out when talking about the importance of the student-athlete interest and the student-athlete experience, that in the new constitution, the proposed constitution, there is an entire subsection that is devoted to protecting student-athlete mental and physical well-being. And she refers specifically to, let me see if I can pull this up real quick here. So this is in the new constitution, and it is under subsection D of Article 1. And Article 1 is titled Principles, and I talked about this in a prior episode. This is a cut-and-paste exercise, and what the NCAA has done here is just pulled snippets from the existing Article 2 
of the NCAA Constitution, all these fluffy principles, including gender equity and athlete well-being and academic uh, integrity and all this garbage that the NCAA doesn't stand behind because it doesn't legislate in those areas. And that was proven in the Baylor case when they tried to get at this horrible misconduct and violence against women through NCAA legislation. And there isn't any because the NCAA doesn't protect the principles of its constitution in organic legislation that allows it to enforce those lofty goals. They're just meaningless, hortatory exclamations that have no legal significance. And the same is true for this new constitution. So Baker Watson's talking about this new constitutional provision as if it confers upon the athletes some enforceable rights to protect their mental and physical well-being. And it does not. You cannot talk about any of these constitutional principles without talking about whether they are enforceable. And under this new constitution, we don't know what Division One is going to say they want to enforce. And that's really all that matters here. Division Two and Division Three, they're not going to put teeth into this constitutional provision at the divisional level because they've been making the case in Congress and to other stakeholders that they can't afford any health or safety protocols or any health or safety mandates that are going to put additional financial pressure on them. They have opposed that. And that was one of the criticisms that came through Division Three. So here in this propaganda podcast, Baker Watson is talking about this article of the new constitution. It's titled Student-Athlete Well-Being, and it is nothing more than a cut and paste from several of the old constitutional provisions. But let me just read this just to, to drill down on how ridiculous that assertion is and that impression that there are going to be enforceable mandates, enforceable provisions of NCAA or divisional legislation that will protect the athlete's mental and physical well-being. So that provision reads, subsection D, student-athlete well-being. This is the new constitution. Intercollegiate athletics programs shall be conducted in a manner designed to protect, support, and enhance the physical and mental health and safety of student-athletes. And that is nothing more than a rehash of the existing Article 2, uh, 2.2.1, which is uh, titled uh, student-athlete well-being or athlete well-being. And then the new constitution goes on to say, each member institution and conference, but interestingly, not the NCAA, shall facilitate an environment that reinforces physical and mental health within athletics by ensuring access to appropriate resources and open engagement with respect to physical and mental health. What does that mean? It means nothing. It means nothing. They shall. You see the word shall and you think, oh, wow, they're going to require the institutions and conferences to do something here, to get serious about this, finally, to get serious about this. But what are they shalling? They shall facilitate an environment that reinforces physical and mental health within athletics by ensuring access to appropriate resources. That means nothing. There's nothing there to enforce. You can talk about it. You can promote it. And that's what they're doing right now. And there are all these mental health initiatives that have just sprung up. I don't think that's coincidental. I'll talk more about that at some point. But this alliance, the ACC, the Pac-12, and the Big Ten just announced a new mental health initiative. And all, all kinds of important people are talking about mental health. But I don't think they're talking about enforceable mandates that benefit the athletes. Then this constitutional provision, student-athlete well-being in the new constitution, goes on to say, each institution and conference is responsible 
responsible for ensuring that coaches and administrators exhibit fairness, openness, and honesty in their relationship with student-athletes. That's a cut and paste from a provision from the old Constitution that has no enforceability because there's no legislation in the existing NCAA Division I manual that would make that enforceable. And any breach, any unfairness or lack of openness or dishonesty by coaches or people interacting with athletes isn't actionable. It's not actionable. And so it's worth nothing. And then the next sentence, a student athlete shall not be discriminated against or disparaged because of their physical or mental health institutions, conferences, administrators, and coaches shall protect student athletes from physical and mental abuse, neglect, and undue harm. Well, that sounds great. And that's not in the old constitution, but how do you enforce that? Tell me how under this draft constitution, you take that language uh, and put it into some kind of enforceable principle. You can't do it and they're not going to do it because to do that would be an additional point of potential liability and an additional point of administrative overhead. And, and that they're just not going to do it. And then Stinson, Harry Stinson, comes back. And he's not as good at wrapping up the money with all this student-athlete experience stuff. So he says, oh, what Stevie said, I, I think it was important for us to identify and be able to keep the financial. So he's listening to her BS. He's not hearing student-athlete experience. He's hearing, yeah, we kept our money. We preserved our money. And he just comes out and says that. I just I laughed when I heard him, that transition from Division three to division three. Yeah, we were able to keep the financials. What does that mean? It means that under the new constitution, and this is an entirely independent and separate provision of the new constitution that did not exist in the old constitution, and it is titled finance. And let me see, I'm flipping through this thing. This is just, I mean, look, I'm getting frustrated just flipping through all this BS. But uh, Article three of the new constitution is titled finance. And it is now a standalone provision in this new constitution. And it says resources will be allocated to the three divisions to provide standard membership services, including championships. Division two will receive 4.37% and division three will receive 3.18% of all operating revenue sources as agreed on January 9th, 1996. That exact language is contained in the old constitution, but it's buried in article four. It has been pulled out and emphasized to make clear that this is a priority, that the division two and division three payoffs and these block grants from March Madness money are going to be protected at the highest level in this new constitution. And that sounds like a small percentage, but when you're talking about $1.1 billion, and we're talking about gross revenue here, total operating revenue, we're not talking about net revenue. So I ran some numbers on that, and I'm assuming a $1.1 billion payout each year under the March Madness contract. But for Division Two, that 4.37% of, of total operating revenue is almost $50 million. And then for Division Three, it's over $35 million. And I believe this is a floor, not a ceiling. But the other thing that's important is this association-wide services commitment. And that exists now, but it's being preserved. 
And that made Division Two and Division Three nervous because if they had to be on their own, if they weren't getting the benefit of this welfare from the March Madness contract, they're going to have to come up with that revenue if they want to operate the way they've been operating for, for decades. And then they're going to have to duplicate some of the administrative services that are being provided by the NCAA. And the Division Two and Division Three don't pay a penny for that. And when you look at the NCAA's Form 990 tax returns, and you look at the functional operating expenses, accepting how the NCAAs characterized this, almost $200 million in quote-unquote program service expenses that are supposedly in support of the NCAA's nonprofit mission are also allocated to the three divisions. So if you take that $200 million in services and you divide it three ways, you get $66 million. You add that to these block grants, and uh, Division Two is getting about $115 million, and then Division Three is getting almost $100 million. That's $215 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money and that has been locked in and divisions two and divisions three are happy as they can be with that buy-off and in exchange for that what do you get you get their vote and this power play gets approved with the two-thirds majority easy peasy this is buying an election they have purchased votes here and it's in black and white in this provision on finances and then i have to point this out too so then stinson comes back around and again he's african-american so he wants to champion the fact that on this new truncated board of governors it's being reduced from 21 voting members down to nine voting members there will be a representative from an hbcu a historically black college or university but guess what it's an ex officio position they don't get a vote they just get uh, a seat but they can't participate in the vote so then we go back to linda livingstone and she has some interesting things to say here because this is where the rubber meets the road divisions two and divisions three are just giddy that they get to to keep their welfare checks and and they're just gonna roll along say whatever they need to say to just keep the the gravy train rolling but when we get to livingstone this question creates some issues for her because the uh, division one interest the power five interest now have the authority to completely rewrite the entire NCAA rulebook. That's how I read this transfer of power. And that's going to happen through Power 5 interest and this transformation committee. And so Livingstone starts by hiding behind the student athletes. And she says, in Division 1, there was also the same level of support for the increased emphasis on the student athlete health and well-being and student athletes actually having a vote. Great. And then she's going on to talk about the Board of Governors and the representation issues, and she thinks that's important. And then she talks about the delegation down of decision-making to the divisional level, which she thinks is a good thing, and they got good feedback on that. And then she says, I think when you start looking at where there might be questions or where we have to continue to work, especially within Division One, some of the questions were actually more about the next phase of things. And by that, she means the work of this transformation committee. And she says the things that they're going to have to address is what are our governance structures going to look like? What does that mean for enforcement? 
how are we going to do allocations within the division? Because remember, they've bought off divisions two and divisions three, but they haven't talked about how the allocations within division one are going to be done. And that's going to be an important and potentially contentious issue. And then she says, frankly, things may actually be more challenging for Division One than they will be for Division Two and Division Three. And then she says, I believe we also have some questions ab- about the structure of the national office and even some of the governance issues. What exactly is that going to mean about what the national office structure looks like? And she says, in order to move to a more decentralized structure of governance within the divisions, some of that we don't have the answers to yet. Some of that will play out on our divisional structure. And when you hear that the first time, it doesn't seem that consequential. But really, what Livingstone is describing here and the open questions that have to be addressed is really some of the most important decision-making that has ever occurred or will ever occur in the context of NCAA regulation. Because these are the big picture issues and none of them are resolved. Or if they are resolved, Livingstone isn't saying so. And I think that there is probably a pretty clear template that they're following and they know pretty much where they want to land. The Power Five do. And this transformation committee is loaded with Power Five interests. Livingstone's just the, the face of that right now. And they're going to get what they want. They're going to get what they need. But it's going to require some negotiation and fold it into that uncertainty. All the questions that Livingstone raises are these outside issues regarding conference realignment and what's really happening there. We don't know because the uh, Power Five conferences have put a muzzle on that and they've done it with the cooperation of the sports media. And, you know, you don't hear ESPN talking much about that, but there's obviously some stuff going on. And I think some of that's reflected in some of these really interesting coaching changes that have occurred very recently in big time college football that have surprised a lot of people. But the sports media has been trying to downplay the significance of that. Oh, this is just people going for the money. And what do you expect? This is America. You go for the money. And I'll talk more about that in, a, in another episode as well, because I think that exposes another flaw in the way that the Power Five and NCAA are selling values when um, in the actual business operations of big time college sports, there are no values at all. The only value is money, following the money. But I'm going to be talking about the transfer committee here in an upcoming episode, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But what's interesting is that, you know, these are the most important questions in this whole makeover, this whole kabuki theater makeover. And then Katz comes in behind Livingstone's response and says this. And this is, again, part of the propaganda tactics that the NCAA use. And, and so Katz comes in and he says, yeah, first of all, it drives me crazy when people start criticizing the work in progress. There's still a lot of work to do. There's no finished product yet. And we're moving in the right direction. He tries to transition into a discussion about the differences in, in budgets and revenues across the three divisions. But what he's saying there is you can't question Linda Livingstone. You can't ask any questions questions about the issues that are the most important ones in this entire debate. We're just going to table those. We're not talking about that now. And if you bring it up, you're the problem. And that is just a brush back pitch here. 
Because you have to remember that the membership didn't just wake up one day and Divisions 2 and Divisions 3 or the, any athlete groups would wake up one day and say, oh, let's uh, make over the Constitution. This came from the Power Five insiders when they were making demands behind the scene to get their way yet again. And they have their own strategy. I think they know what that strategy is. And some of these open questions that Livingstone's referring to probably aren't that open. And she's just not going to talk about it yet because they haven't finalized the deal. And Katz is running interference for that cover-up. And he's saying, it just drives me crazy when people are done. work in progress, blah, blah, blah. No, this is a purposeful campaign to gaslight the public into thinking that this is all about uh, the student-athletes when it is about power and money. And there's no discussion about that. Nowhere in this transcript do you hear anybody talk about the basic structure of big-time college sports, the fact that football keeps all its revenue because of Board of Regents, the fact that the NCAA and downstream beneficiaries in Division Two and Division Three are solely dependent on March Madness money. Those are two of the most important features of the entire business model, and you won't hear anybody in this podcast episode breathe a word of any of that. There's not a single reference to the source of this revenue that's being distributed. That is not an accident. That was purposeful. This is a carefully groomed narrative where certain things are off limits. You can't say certain things. The word amateurism doesn't appear anywhere in this whole Constitution Committee initiative, not in the new draft Constitution or not in any of the propaganda that's come out from the spokespeople, the students, Bob Gates, or any of the people uh, that are representing the institutional interests. You cannot say amateurism. It is off limits. You cannot acknowledge the reality of the relationship between big-time powerful football, Power 5 football interests, and the March Madness money. You cannot have an intelligent, honest discussion about remaking the governance structure in college sports or reallocating power in that regulatory structure without talking about these fundamental realities about the business of big-time college sports and the marketplace and how the Power 5 football interests dominate this conversation. But they won't breathe a word of it. And so then, let's see, Katz asked some question about disparate resources. It doesn't really do a whole lot, except that the Division Two and Division Three interests get to restate their need for the money. And they talk about the operating revenue. Again, they, they speak about this money in terms of operating revenue and budget allocations. But they aren't going to say that this money comes exclusively from the Division One men's basketball tournament and the labors of uh, a labor force that's overwhelmingly African-American. You just can't say that. And so, yeah, it's about funding. It's about the financial model. It's about operating revenue and all that stuff. And then, let's see, then there is this homage paid to the athlete representatives. And so Kat says, so the three of you are adults and professionals. Uh, last week in our program, we had student athletes, both current and former. They do have a voice. So if each of you could address how much of a voice you want them to have and all this stuff. But the way that Katz rolls this out, it's like he had a, a representative group of student athletes across stakeholder interests within the athlete universe in college sports. And that's just not true. You have three people, three people. 
none of whom are representatives of uh, revenue-producing sports. So the Division I athlete was a, a track guy at New Mexico, and then Division Two, I think we had in three, we had a volleyball player and another track athlete and two white women, one African-American man, but not a single revenue-producing athlete representative. And I'll just say again, through seven hearings, over 20 months in the Senate and the House of Representatives, through all these committees, through all these groups that are looking at promoting athletes' rights and all these student groups that the NCAA and Power Five are hiding behind, there has not been a single revenue-producing athlete who has had a seat at the table or has been allowed to express an opinion here. And that is not an accident. They do not want that voice heard in this debate. So what do you do? You handpick a very small group of athlete representatives to create the public face you want for public relations and political purposes. And then you have them uh, offer their opinions in a forum where you basically control the message. And that's not a criticism of the athletes. I'm going to talk again in separate episodes about that because I think that they may have some thoughts here that are worth listening to that haven't been able to break through the NCAA propaganda. But I think they have some good stuff to say, but it's been presented and massaged through this uh, lens of NCAA Power 5 propaganda. And then there were a couple of other uh, things that Katz gets to, and really Livingstone's responses to these issues are the most important. And honestly, Stinson and Baker Watson just pretty much keep churning out the same propaganda. They're happy. They got what they want. And so I'm I'm not going to talk anymore about their thoughts. But he asks Livingstone, and he says, you were on the board of governors, the board of directors. There's a lot on your plate, but there are so many different issues, divisional levels we discussed. And a lot of times the board of governors and the board of directors have been a little resistant to change. What are you seeing right now? And then Livingstone says, look, even prior to the setup of this Constitution Committee, There were some structural issues that needed to be addressed. And then she says that the feeling within Division I was that we were going to have to make some significant changes to how we govern ourselves if we want to continue to write our own destiny in intercollegiate athletics and not have an outside entity having more control over what we do than we might think is appropriate in higher education and allowing us to maintain the integrity of college college athletics, and the student-athlete. And she says, uh, so I think it was very clear to leadership in Division One and across Division One that we were going to have to take this seriously. You're going to have to make some very significant changes. And I think we are doing this at the association level. And then she says, this is important, but I also think that as we drill down to the Division I level, it's imperative that we keep that transformational hat on in Division One. In fact, the group is called the Transformation Committee to keep reminding ourselves that our work is not done and that if we really want the collegiate athletic model to survive and be successful at the highest levels, then we're going to have to be very introspective and take this very seriously to make sure that what we do sets us up for the long run under the umbrella of what we're trying to do at the association level. And a lot of that reads just like 
blather, but there's some interesting stuff there. And the first thing is that she says, look, even before this Constitution Committee, there was a sense among many in the division and, and leaders within the division that the association and Division One had basically lost control of the narrative. And she refers to a very obliquely these outside entities, but she doesn't say who they are, what they are, and specifically how the NCAA put itself in a position of having virtually zero credibility or relevance. And she doesn't talk about the fact that it was the NCAA that did this to itself, that it went to Congress and then fell flat on its face, that it appealed the Austin decision, that it was seeking to preempt all these state laws. They drove the train on that. These issues just didn't appear. They weren't imposed on the NCAA. They were because of the NCAA. And she doesn't acknowledge that. But she does acknowledge that those external forces have forced change. And that's an implicit acknowledgement that the NCAA simply can't self-regulate. And what I've said all along is that through this Constitution Committee, as with so many other NCAA initiatives, you have only NCAA insiders formulating policy and then being put into uh, positions of decision-making authority. And when you have the same people who are who created this mess, who created the very circumstances that Livingstone's complaining about now, in charge of trying to get the institution out of that mess, you got a problem. It's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen through this Constitution Committee. And when we get on the backside of an analysis of this committee and what some of the big picture issues are that are still on the table, you're going to see that a lot of these external threats haven't gone away. And I think that's going to tie into what the Power Five now will do when they go back to Congress on the backside of this constitutional makeover. But she's saying, look, we're going to drill down on all this stuff through this Transformation Committee, but all these issues existed before the formation of this Constitution Committee. She just doesn't want to accept responsibility for the fact that it was the NCAA and Power Five that created this mess and are continuing to create this mess. And it is the interest, the Power Five interests, that are making a mockery of the values that the NCAA and the institutions in the Power Five claim to hold. They are going for the money and they are going big. And it's only going to get worse once the Power Five get the levers of power under the NCAA umbrella. And she's not going to come out and say that because she's benefiting from it. She is the uh, president of a Power Five university. She is the ultimate NCAA Power Five insider at the highest levels. She has a seat at the most important decision-making tables behind the scenes. And again, I talked about the smoke-filled rooms. You wonder what those are, where all these decisions are being made. Linda Livingstone's got a seat of some prominence at all of the tables in those smoke-filled rooms. And then the other thing that Livingstone's comments exposed, and this is, again, a, a really important thing that gets virtually no attention in this whole discussion about the makeover of the regulatory authorities in college sports, and that is that all of these structural things that they're talking about now and the relationship among the divisional stakeholder interests under the NCAA umbrella, these have been issues for a long, long time, and there have been talks really going back for 50 years about how we can align all of these disparate interests under the NCAA big 
tent, and it's almost impossible to do because the Power Five interests, as, as they have evolved into the 21st century, have absolutely nothing in common with any Division Three products, and I would say any Division Two products, and having them under the same umbrella and driving all of the decision-making and the policy-making makes no sense at all at the structural level, if you're being honest about it. And there's some acknowledgement here. I don't think Livingstone intended to do this, but I think it is an acknowledgement that these issues have been floating over the regulation of college sports for decades. And you have to ask yourself, why weren't these issues, which are completely independent of all these external influences that have forced a discussion now about the issues, but they're really independent of that because they've existed for decades. But you didn't hear a single word of any of these issues in any of the congressional hearings over the last 20 months. And the reason for that is that at that time, everybody was happy with the status quo and they were looking to enhance the national authority of the NCAA, not diminish it by sending authorities down to the divisions. They were asking for the iron throne of college sports regulation, and they were well on their way to getting it. And it was all about more power, more national power, more national authority. And they failed. So only now are we talking about a new model and sending authorities down to the divisions. But if the NCAA and the Power Five had gotten what they wanted through antitrust immunity, preemption of state laws, and a declaration that athletes can't be employees, if they had gotten that in 2020 when they had the chance to do it in a Republican-controlled Senate, we're not having this discussion. There's no discussion about these structural issues. The old status quo would be in place. It would be unchallengeable under these new federal authorities. And you wouldn't hear any in-system stakeholder beneficiaries breathing a word about any of the discussion that's occurring around this Constitution Committee right now. And that's the truth. So if, if this were a principled discussion about the need for structural change in the regulatory model of college sports, that issue would have been on the table at every one of these congressional hearings. But this isn't a principled discussion about meaningful change in the regulation of college sports. This is a power grab by the Power Five, and this is capitulation by the NCAA National Office, and this is a desperate attempt for the NCAA to remain relevant, and it's achieved that by latching on to the March Madness money and conducting national championships. Those authorities have been pulled from the bowels of the current Division I manual, the 451-page manual, and they have been brought out of obscurity and into the light, and they are now constitutional mandates that the NCAA conduct the national championships and then sell NCAA property, notably the rights to the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, March Madness. And so that's all I have to do now. But that is not a principled discussion about structural change in the regulatory model. So now I want to turn to the next question that Katz asks, and Livingstone's answer bumps up against some of the things she just discussed, but uh, a couple of things worth pointing out here in that response. But what's most important here is Katz's question, because he is employing one of these two propaganda tactics that I talked about at the beginning of the episode. He's already achieved the first one, and that is this a spontaneous consent to the perception that everybody agrees. There's total consensus on these narratives and these issues. 
There's been a thorough and thoughtful debate, and now just listen to our representatives. They just couldn't agree more. Then Katz employs the second propaganda tactic, and it dovetails with that first one. And it is that if you disagree with these narratives that we have just achieved spontaneous consent to, then you are the problem at the personal level. You are an outlier. You are a troublemaker, and you are not on the team. It is an all-or-nothing approach. And then Kat says he just wants to get the opinion of these three spokespeople about why it is better to restructure, to retool, rather than completely separate and start completely over and try to create your own thing. And right there, I want to stop because what Katz is talking about is the Power Five leaving the NCAA. He's talking about an issue that has been on the table for decades now. And then he says this, you know, doing that, which the fringe loves to throw out but it's not realistic. And then he turns to Linda Livingstone. But what is Katz doing here? He is saying that anybody who espouses a view that is inconsistent with the new big tent theory that the NCAA Power Five and Divisions Two and Three are putting out there for public relations purposes, that you are on the fringe. If you think that Ohio State has no business being under the same regulatory umbrella as Finlandia College or Lancaster Bible College, then you are the problem. You are the outlier. You are the fringe lunatic. And Mark Emmert has been a master at this. And the NCAA propaganda machine has been a master at this. You create a false consensus, spontaneous consent to a false narrative. And then you say that anybody that disagrees with that narrative is the problem. It's hard to tell how well Katz understands the history of the relationship between the powerful football interests and the NCAA bureaucracy, but the powerful football interests have been threatening to leave since the 1970s to get their way under the NCAA umbrella. And in 2013-2014 with autonomy, that was explicit. They were saying that publicly. And they were bullying the NCAA into getting their way and isolating their interests. And these discussions go back decades, literally decades, about the fact that the Power Five and the big-time football interests, however they have been constituted, whether it's the Ball Alliance, the BCS, or the new Power Five and the CS, that they have no business being under the same tent as these Division Three interests. And the Knight Commission has said that. They've changed their rhetoric. I'm going to talk about that too, because now they are okay with the big tent so long as some of this football money gets sent uh, downstream and is part of the uh, welfare stream to uh, Divisions Two and Divisions Three. But this isn't a new issue. This isn't a provocative issue. This is common sense. But Katz is trying to portray people who raise the issue for discussion as fringe lunatics. And so here's how Livingstone answers this. And she says, well, there were discussions within the Constitution Committee about a further division in some way that didn't keep some umbrella structure around. So what is she saying there? She's saying, yeah, there were discussions about that. 
because it's such an obvious talking point. It may be the threshold talking point. In any discussion about restructuring the regulation of college sports, that is the very first item on the agenda because it is the most obvious problem with the current regulatory model. And then she says, in response to that important threshold issue, that she believes that there was enough common values and principles that are commonly held across all three divisions. And the sense was that to maintain the integrity of the system and these principles across all the diversity of intercollegiate athletics, that you needed to keep everybody together under this broad value system. But she doesn't say what those values are. And neither Katz nor Livingstone are going to breathe the phrase Power Five. That's verboten. And as part of the vocabulary requirements of this discussion around the Constitution Committee. But again, she's going back to these shared values, not talking about the obvious flaws in the business model of having the Power Five football interests along with the Division Three interests. So it's a values, values, values. And Livingstone even invokes the collegiate model. So she says, while we certainly looked at whether there was a more dramatic restructure to take place, I think we felt like the integrity of the collegiate model is important to maintain across all all levels. So the collegiate model, what what does she mean by that? Uh, That's a substitute for amateurism. You can't say the A word, but you can say the collegiate model. And then she says, regardless of what division you're in, because we all believe in those principles, they looked at those issues because of, quote, pressure from outside entities. It's not quite clear what she's talking about there, whether that is the obvious pressure of external regulatory forces, you know, antitrust litigation and and all that stuff, or whether she's talking about the Knight Commission because the Knight Commission had been uh, recommending separation. So in any event, she doesn't treat it as an outlier issue. She acknowledges that it was discussed, and that just flies in the face of Katz's uh, attempt to propagandize any discussion of that as a fringe issue to talk about that. And then she says that, well, regardless of what division you're in, we all believe in the collegiate model. And then she invokes the survey and talked about the shared values that came out of that survey. And we'll we'll talk about that and the commonality of principle. But what's important about that exchange is more the way that Katz really tried to demonize anyone who advocated that position when that is not an outlier position. It is a principled position that should be part of this discussion and on the table. You are not a fringe lunatic when you raise that issue. But that's how the NCAA propagandists approach their totalitarian strategies on their false narratives. You are 100% in or you are 100% out. And that goes back to the Walter Byers years of the black hat, white hat dichotomy. And that is alive and well today. And it is playing out most prominently right now under the existing NCAA infractions and enforcement team who are making a mockery of the values that the NCAA claims to hold. And again, I think when you look at Livingstone's comments carefully, I think she's saying that hasn't been resolved yet. And I talked about that in prior episodes, and that's going to be a point of contention because they are an integral part of the administrative state. The NCAA staff, national office staff, infractions and enforcement people 
are an important and powerful part of the NCAA administrative state, and they are not going to go quietly. And so this notion of devolving down infractions and enforcement to the divisional level is going to be interesting. And, and I'm going to be paying attention to that. That was one of the reasons I started talking about this Constitution Committee, because all of these discussions about aligning responsibilities and authorities ultimately land with infractions and enforcement and what principles the NCAA is going to stand behind, legislate in, and then enforce. And we don't know that yet. Because all this has been basically tabled until the Transformation Committee and the Power Five Enters get in there and start swinging their hammer. And we're going to have to see what happens there. So I thought that was an important episode to get in. And it's a, a little bit long, but I think it's really important to understand at the propaganda level where this is headed right now. And so now turning to the next episodes, I think I'm going to probably start talking about some of these open questions that remain in the Division I decision-making process through this transformation committee. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what that committee looks like, why I think it's composed the way it is. And remember, you've got Greg Sankey, who is a co-chair He's the commissioner of the SEC, and he has been one of the most powerful behind-the-scenes influences in all of these debates about the future of college sports, the structure of the regulatory model, and the fundamental relationship between the institutions and the laborers, the revenue-producing athletes. So looking at the composition of that committee and then some of these open questions that Livingstone referred to that have to be answered through the work of that committee and then these outside issues which still haven't been really addressed they're still looming out there like the antitrust threat like the campaign in congress what's this new power five oriented regulatory model going to look like when they go back to congress and that's all important stuff so we'll talk about all that in the next episodes so with that, I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.